welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim. And I am Steve. And what a week it has been. And we're not talking about the world scene. Oh my goodness. So Best of Dayton came out on Tuesday. And we were we were hopeful but not expectant. Um, we really appreciate everyone that nominated us. Um, and Best of Dayton came out on Tuesday. We were not nominated. But it was okay. Like, it wasn't a big deal because... The other shows that were nominated were, I, I mean, they, like they've either it's shows that have been around for a long, like a long, long time, or it's people that are very well known in the Dayton journalistic community. So, um, you know, it was just an honor to that enough people have listened to us after only at the time like twenty four episodes that we had people write in. So I wrote to Dayton.com and I said, "Hey, just out of curiosity, how close were we?" And on Wednesday, I got a message back from them, and they said, actually, it's funny you should ask, because we had some uh, confusion on a couple of the categories, and you have been nominated for Best of Dayton 2019. Congratulations. You have made it to the finals. We are so excited. I am, I am super hype. I am too. I'm, I, I'm excited. Like I, the people I was at the Boonshaft actually um, when I got that email, and everybody kind of looked at me because I may or may not have actually like squealed loudly. <laughs> so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so very much to everyone who nominated us. Thank you to the people that have voted so far. Uh, if you go to any of our social medias, uh, go to Facebook, Instagram, um, on An Hour of Your Life, or on either one of our personal accounts. Vote, vote, vote. There is a link in the bio. You can vote once a day per email address. So I know some <laughs> of you out there have like five, six email addresses. You can vote once a day per email address. That's not cheating. That's voting her email address once a day. So uh, please go vote for Hour of Your Life for Best Dayton Podcast. Um, again, best of luck and congratulations to all of the other podcasts that were nominated. We are thrilled to be in such... Look, we didn't even expect to make this we right really here where didn't. we're at we right are, now. We are super honored and excited and thrilled to be in such a prestigious and elite group. That being said... Today is a super, it's a really special episode. I'm, I'm so happy and so excited for a lot of different reasons. Um, we had planned, because Best of Dayton was coming out this week anyway, we had planned to do an episode on Dayton this week. Um, I grew up here, my family, I'm fourth generation Daytonian. My family has been here since the 20s. Um, I, I love Dayton with my whole heart. It is, I'm so proud to be from here. I love the people from Dayton. I love... You can tell Kim's excited because <laughs> I don't even get to speak right now. I grew up over in Columbus. Yeah, he's not like... It's, and it's, I mean, to right. us over there, Dayton was just that little town over there out west. We are not that little. Thank you very much. We are the sixth largest city in Ohio. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute, but I love Dayton so much. But um, so we had already planned to talk about Dayton, but then I realized this is our twenty fifth episode. Do you know what that means? Twenty fifth regular episode. Twenty fifth. We're not ex we're not counting the TSP episode because that was a, a special, special edition. Project. Yep. Yeah, it was not an hour. It was like a special thing. So this is our twenty fifth regular episode. Do you know what that means? What's that mean, Kim? The twenty fifth is the diamond jubilee. The crown. 
No, we are. What city are we? The Gem City. We're the Gem City. So but, we're okay, covering the, the 25th Diamond Jubilee of the Gem City on the week that Dayton. Dot com did their best of but Dayton, you know what which I was we're re- nominated for. But you know what I was referring <laughs> so to? Perfect. The reason Dayton is called the Gem City is because it's the crown, and the is, gem is in the crown. Yes, we are. The, so that's one allegation. That's not my favorite one because supposedly we are, you know, how Cincinnati is the queen city, and we sit north of Cincinnati. We are the gem in the crown of the queen city. That's Essentially what I just said. Yeah, but I don't like that because who cares about Cincinnati? I mean, Cincinnati, you're wonderful. I, I do like Cincinnati too, but we we can stand on our own merit. I like Dayton. I love Dayton. I, I have lived now in Dayton for going on 20 years, and I have lived in a lot of places around the world. And Dayton, there is there really is. There's something special about Dayton, Ohio. The people here... It's I, I like it. It's a good place to live. We've talked about this with uh, the base and how we have friends that were in the Air Force that are not from even from Ohio, and they got stationed at Wright Pat. And when they retired, they came back to Wright Pat because they love the Dayton area so much. So, so anyway, we're about ready to start talking about Dayton right now because <laughs> we haven't been. Yeah, we haven't been. <laughs> but I'll t- we we were planning on doing this in one episode, and when we started getting the information. There's just so much history, and there's just so much to Dayton. We're going to have to break it up into two episodes right yeah, now. Yeah, so the first one will be this week. Next one will be next week. Um, and we may have to talk a little fast even to get through this week. Uh, so we've arranged it kind of chronologically. Um, and so just a little bit of background about Dayton. Like I said, it's the sixth largest city in Ohio. As of 2018 statistics, the city proper is about 140,640 people. The greater Dayton area is roughly 803,416. So we're talking about the Miami Valley. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So less than a million people. Um, So we're not huge, but we're not super tiny. Uh, um, Dayton was surveyed and platted by a guy named Israel Ludlow in 1796, and you might recognize that name. Ludlow Street. Yes, the street uh, was named for him. Dayton was founded on April 1st, 1796. So our birthday is April Fool's Day. Did you know that? I, You know what? I probably did, but I'm thank you for pointing that out right you're, now. You're welcome. Uh, in 1796, by 12 settlers called the Thompson Party, and they traveled up from um, up the Great Miami in a small boat, and they landed at what is now St. Clair Street. Do you know who Dayton is named after? This kind of irritated yeah, me a little it, bit. It's, it's named after Jonathan Dayton. It is named after Jonathan who was Dayton. He a was a revolutionary, revolutionary war veteran and politician. He was. He actually, Jonathan Dayton was the youngest signer of the Constitution, but this part kind of irritated me a little bit. He's never once visited Dayton. I think if somebody thought highly of me enough to name a city after me, I'd go, like, sleep there at least one night. Yeah, you, maybe this should have been called Ludlow instead I of agree. Dayton. I agree. It totally or, should have or, been called Ludlow. Dayton is older than Miami, Florida. We could have taken Miami as the name. We could have. Because of the Great so Miami kinda, River? If, if you are a descendant of Jonathan Dayton and you listen to our podcast, please come visit. We are a lovely place, and we would love to host you. 
1797, Daniel C. Cooper laid out the Mad River Road uh, between Dayton and Cincinnati, and so there was that was our first major um, thoroughfare between the two big cities. I wonder if that's turned into Sunday Road now. Could she? I might. I mean, that Probably would make sense. Or the river. Yeah, Coast roughly yeah. the same route. In 1803, Ohio was admitted to the Union, and in 1805, Dayton was incorporated, and in 1841, it became chartered. So these are all, like, boring old, like, the startup founding dates that nobody really... I know you guys don't really care about this, but okay. we're, we're going to throw them in there anyway. I remember... In, I got I to gotta stop for a second. Okay. I remember in high school, we had a teacher. It wasn't history, but it was social studies. And the poor old guy at that time was probably well up into his 80s. He would fall asleep at his desk while he was lecturing us. That's awful. And he, he would just nod over, and pretty soon his forehead would be on his desk. And guess what we all did? Left. We got up and left. Please don't leave. It's going to get better. I promise. I promise it's going to get better. This is just like the boring the boring beginning part. Um so basically, the whole point if, is if, that Dayton is older than Ohio. If, if you went to Grove City High School, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, actually, I don't know that Dayton is older than Ohio. Not by much. I mean, it depends on what you're... It was surveyed and platted in 1796, but it was incorporated in 1805, two years after Ohio was admitted to the Union. So, eh, depends. Anyway, in 1827... Construction on a canal between Dayton and Cincinnati began, so then not only did you have a road, you had a waterway, and trade opportunities really opened up, and then... And that canal went from the Ohio River up to the Erie, Lake Erie. Yeah, and then Dayton really hit the big time after that canal opened up. We had quite a few canals. Uh, I'm not really going to talk about that. I think, I don't know if you're going to talk about the canal system much. Not really. But... Uh, canals were were very important to Dayton. Um, you know what? We can add that next week. Sure, we can. We can maybe talk about that a little bit. Uh, but trade opened up. Dayton hit the big time. You guys, if you're from Dayton, I'm. I know that you know the name John Henry Patterson. If you're not from Dayton, he probably you have probably have no idea who he is. But he is a local legend. In 1884, he bought some a company called the National Manufacturing Company and its cash register patent. So not everyone knows, if you're not from around here, that the cash register was actually invented in Dayton. Uh, And it was developed by a guy named Charles F. Kettering in 1906. So there was a patent on it in 1884, but the first electric cash register was patented right here in 1906. Interestingly, Charles F. Kettering had over 300 patents to his name. Yeah, there that's one of the big things in the story when I'll be talking about industry is how much innovation Dayton is came, the home of invention. Comes out of Dayton, Ohio. Like that's kind of one of that's one of many nicknames that we have. Uh, and it it's a good one. There's so many things that were invented here. Um, Charles F. Kettering also developed the self-starter with Edward Deeds. And NCR, the National Cash Register Company, helped work on the machine that was a forerunner to the Enigma machine. And Steve's going to talk about all of this in just a, a little bit. Yep. Uh, we have a lot of inventions. Some of the inventions, not like we have even more than what I'm going to tell you, but some of the inventions that we have um, that were made right here in Dayton, the stepladder, the black light. So uh, <laughs> when you're sitting around uh, in April all month long, uh with your black light on, just just remember us here in Dayton. 
Microfiche, the heart-lung machine. I didn't realize that was invented here in Dayton. The motorized wheelchair, the ice cube tray, and we are a huge movie town. Did you know that? Yes, I did. We invented the movie projector, the movie camera, the movie film, and the movie theater. So, you're welcome. We also invented space food, gas masks, the airplane, which you probably already knew. Tang. We invented Tang? Oh, you said space food. No, like the space food, like the bars. We well, they, might have the invented ast- Tang. The astronauts used to take yeah, Tang in yeah, outer I'm sure space. They, we probably did. Some of you may not even know what Tang is. Is it still out there? I think maybe. I've, I've not know, seen it. I'll have it. to look. I'm the one that I does the grocery shopping. I've not seen it. I bet they have it at Dots. They have alphabets at Dots still. Uh... Because we invented the pl- airplane, we also invented the parachute. <laughs> My favorite... <laughs> we did. Okay. It goes hand in hand right they there. They do. My favorite Daytona of, of all time, though, if you're from the area, you probably know the name Ermel Fraze. And if you know the name Ermel Fraze, you probably know it because Warped Wing made a beer for him. Okay, so let me ask you this. Uh, growing up in dating, Dayton and going to school in the Dayton area, did you get, like... During Ohio history, did you get, like, Dayton history? Did they, how much of this stuff did they teach you in school? Um, some of it, I think really it depends on where you go to school. I got some of it, but a lot of it, I think, is just passed down. Like, it's just okay. passed down from family. Like, Fair enough. Like, my mom grew up right down the street from Esther Price. So uh, the Prices were, like, friends with my, with my grandparents. And so they... Like, I just knew. I mean, there was a family connection, and so we just heard the stories growing up and stuff. Um, but my favorite Daytonian of all time is Ermel Fraze. Uh, Ernie, as he was known, he invented the pop top. And I would argue that he is, that, that is the best invention to come out of Dayton. Um, I'm kind of. How many times? I kind of like the electric starter on the car. How many times has a pop top, how, how, how many times has somebody been injured by a pop top like they have in a car or an airplane? How many times has a pop top be- saved somebody from having to find a can opener? That's actually the, the story behind um, how the pop top was invented. Ernie Fraze was at a picnic at he a barbecue. He didn't have a can opener. He didn't have a can opener for his beer. And so he had to open it. Like, he finally got it open on a, the bumper of a car. <laughs> but it was annoying and irritating. And so he went home and invented the pop top. And that is Dayton in a nutshell. You, we see a problem, we fix it. That's what we do here. Uh, all right, so I mentioned the airplane. Everybody knows the Wright brothers. If you, that is something that we learn about. Like it's kind of, I don't want to say it's shoved, it's crammed on our throats. I, that's a mean way of putting it. That's not accurate necessarily, but from the time you can walk, if you live in Dayton, if you grew up in Dayton, you know who the Wright brothers well, are. Well, that's Ohio history. We learned that where I went to school too. Yeah. They're, they're kind of a big deal around here. There are statues. There are monuments. They are buried here in Dayton at Wood, um, one of my, Woodland Cemetery. One of my favorite statues is down on Main Street. The flyover sculpture. It is the exact path, replicates the exact path that the Wrights did on their first flight. It's the exact length, and it traces the elevation and how they did that. I, I, I love... 
I do I will like go downtown sculpture. just to drive by to look at that statue. This is how big of a deal, if you're not from here, this is how big of a deal the rights are to Dayton. We have a performing arts center called the Schuster Center. We get like Broadway, touring Broadway shows and very, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a big deal. And the ceiling uh, in the, in like in the hall part of it is, has a bunch of uh, like twinkling lights in the top and it is to mimic the constellations in the night sky the night that the first flight happened. Yeah, kind of like a, like a planetarium up there. Yeah. It's really cool to look at. So the rights really um, are, a, a, even now, we have a university, we have an Air Force base named after them. Everything in Dayton, a lot of Dayton, revolves around planes right. and the Wright brothers. brothers. Um, so the Wrights were tinkerers, and they were always into stuff. The family was kind of a little bit odd. Their father, Milton, was a bishop. And the family had frequently moved. Uh, I'm not really sure what exactly religion um, Milton was affiliated with, but they he was kind of like a traveling bishop, so they moved around a lot. And they moved from, the, I think the Wrights were born in Dayton, and then they left and came back. Uh, so the boys got a toy helicopter back in 19, or 1848. They broke it. They put they it back together. They did not get a toy helicopter. It was, I mean, it wasn't... It was the same essential, like, I mean, it wasn't like a Black Hawk, but it was the same, because Otto Lilienthal... Did they call it a whirly gig or something? Yeah, yeah basically. Okay. Like, they had been, they had, when they got a little older, they were following Otto Lilienthal and, like, his trials and everything. So they got, basically, it was a, basically a helicopter. It was like a little whirly gig thing. Uh, they broke it, they put it back together, and then they became obsessed with flying, Orville was the bad one. Did you know there was a bad Wright brother? Yeah. I think we always think of them as really I only good. know this because I've read the history. Okay. Yeah. Also, we're not going to get huge into the Wright brothers. Um, David McCullough wrote a really, really good history about them called, I think it's actually called the Wright brothers. It's very good. You, I highly recommend that you check it out. Uh, but Orville got expelled back in grade school. He was kind of the mischievous one. And Wilbur was serious and more studious. Uh, but when he was in, in like, 1885-86 time period, he got hit in the face with a hockey stick. He was actually really athletic. Uh, up to that point, he planned to go to Yale, and he loved playing sports. But after he got hit, it kind of changed him. He got really mopey and withdrawn. He stayed inside a lot. Uh, their mother was had TB and was in the advanced stages, so he took care of her a lot. In 1889, Orville dropped out of school to run a print shop after he designed and built his own printing press. They had a few newspapers. They printed some works from their buddy Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who was an acclaimed poet. You might have heard of him. Uh, in 1892, they opened their... The Dunbar Library at Wright State University. Uh-huh. He was, I believe, Paul Lawrence Dunbar was the poet laureate of the United States for a little bit. No big deal. Casual. They also... Um, they opened a bike shop in 1892, and that's where they designed the Wright Flyer, and they designed their own bike in 1896. Uh, in 1900, they started work in Kitty Hawk. Now, there's a big contention about between Ohio and North Carolina. That's been settled. About, because North Carolina dared to put first in flight on their license plate. The only reason why they went down there Careful, was... Careful, Kim. We do have listeners from North Carolina. And I'm sure they're lovely people, but the only reason 
why the Wright brothers went to Kitty Hawk was because the winds were a little bit better coming off the ocean and the sand there on the beaches was softer than Ohio dirt. But, but the field where they practiced was here. It's called, it was called Huffman Prairie and it's now part of the Air Force Base. Um, and a fun fact, George Huffman, who the prairie is named after, was also a bicycle guy. He invented Huffy Bikes. Yes. Uh, neither Wright brother ever married, but their sister Catherine did, and her descendants still live in the area. Uh, shout out to Amanda Wright, who was just given an honorary doctorate last year from Wright State University. So moving forward, that was 1903. Ten years later, um, one of my, my, I say favorite parts, it was a terrible part of um, Dayton history, but I think it's very interesting. Well, this is, when we get into that, there, a lot of good things have happened in Dayton, but there is some tragedy and there there's is. some bad stuff we're going to talk about. But and this is really the we're going to talk about later one. about the resilience of yes, Dayton, Ohio. Yes, this is the first one, and this is really the first time that you really see the resiliency of that Dayton has really come to be known for. In 1913, we had a major flood. Uh, we have five major rivers in the area, and the central business district is within a mile of three of their tributaries. Now, interestingly, the Native American people that were indigenous to this area warned Israel Ludlow against building there when he first came and surveyed. But much of the t- um, but when Ludlow was here, a lot of the region's trade was going to be up and down the Great Miami, so it kind of made sense to put the central business business district there. So he kind of ignored the natives, but that ended up being not so great. Between March 21st and March 26th, 1913, these are the events. So March 21st was a Friday. Um, Temperatures were around 60 degrees. Now, this is all Fahrenheit. First storm comes through on Friday. On Saturday, it was a sunny day in the beginning, and this happens a lot in springtime in Ohio. Uh, I mean, it was like 65 degrees here today. We had wintertime. The doors were open. Yeah, our temperatures are very unusual. Um, we we are prone to tornadoes, uh, so th- it was not it was not necessarily super unusual weather, I guess. Um, so Friday to, Friday there was a storm. Saturday it was sunny, but then a, a second storm came and temperatures dropped from the sixties into the twenties. So there was a 40-degree temperature drop. Yeah, it happens here. It does. That's a little unusual. I think the biggest temperature drop I've seen over one day is maybe 25 degrees. Uh, you're forgetting. Maybe we, we, we We've had some... Has it been 40? 50 to 60 degree, Yeah, 50 I guess to 60 there, degree yeah. temperature differentials. It, it happens. Um, so the ground briefly froze on the surface in the morning... And then thawed by late afternoon of of Sunday uh, when a third storm brought rain to the entire Ohio River Valley. So the soil was already saturated. All the rain became runoff. It it went into the Great Miami and its tributaries. So kind of a rainy weekend, a lot of of it, weird temperature differentials. Monday, 7 a.m., after a day and a night of heavy rain, and we're talking 8 to 11 inches of rain. Like, this is a lot of rain. The river reached its high stage for the year. This is in March. It reached its high stage for the year. And then it kept rising. 
Tuesday is the day that everything starts to just really go to hell in a handbasket. By midnight, on midnight Tuesday, the police were warned that the Herman Street levee was weakening and they started warning sirens and alarms. At 5.30 in the morning, the city engineer reported that water was at the top of the levee and was flowing at 100,000 cubic feet per second. That's fast. By 6, 30 minutes later, water had overflowed the levees and started to stream along the city streets. And by 8, levees on the south side of the downtown business district failed and flooding started downtown. Water levels and rain continued to rise throughout the day. By Wednesday, so remember, the first rains came on Friday. By Wednesday, at 1.30 in the morning, water was up to 20 feet in the downtown area. And you can still see now, um, if you drive downtown, you can still see marks where uh, they've gone in and put, like, basically stickers well, little mon- on. There are little monuments all yeah, over where downtown where they've marked, because this wasn't high, the only flood. Yeah, how high the flood was. it was, was. the biggest. Also on Wednesday, that morning, later that morning, there was a gas explosion downtown near the intersection of 5th and Wilkinson, and it started a fire that destroyed most of a city block. The open gas lines resulted in several fires throughout the city. The fire department couldn't reach the fires because of the flooding, and a lot of additional buildings were lost. And today, you can visit this district. It's called the Fire Blocks District. Yep. Um, and it is actually one of our... Uh, there's a place called the Century Bar that is one of the top five bourbon bars in the country is in the Fire Blocks District. Um, So Governor Cox tried to send in the National Guard, but they couldn't get to the city because of the high water. There was only one railway line that could get supplies in. So the hero of the city, we're going to hear about this guy a lot, James Patterson. Um, Remember, he owned NCR at the time. He put his crews to work. They made boats. He sent out rescue teams. Uh, He welcomed the city into the NCR plant. Uh, People set up tents on the roof. Uh, He provided, um, it was the headquarters for the Red Cross, the National Guard. It was a morgue. Uh, He also provided staging for journalists. And in the end, 360 people died. 65,000 were displaced. 20,000 homes were destroyed. And damages were estimated at more than $100 million in 1913 money. That's $2 billion today. Yeah. In less than a week's time. Actually, really in two days' time, if you think about it, by the time the levees broke and everything. Also, something that maybe a lot of people don't think about is the amount of dead animals. There were 1,400 horses and about 2,000 other domestic animals that died, and there wasn't a lot of space for them to go. They were literally piled in the streets. So cleanup and rebuilding took well over a year, and it took a decade to recover economically. Um, and probably one of the most devastating losses from the mo- from the historical standpoint was the documentation of the Wright brothers' photography of the process of their plane development was lost in the floods. So we see that one. There's like one famous photograph of them kind of taking off at Kitty Hawk. There was so much more photography besides that, and all the plates were just ruined in the flood. And so we really only have like one or two pictures left, which is from a historical standpoint is devastating. Oh yeah. Caroline park has a huge display, basically museum of the Dayton flood. There's a lot of artifacts, a lot of pictures. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think is really neat, the WDTN weather people 
recreated the flood, or not the flood, but they recreated. Yeah, like, like if a, you are watching the news today, so they've put like, like the weather, li- the like radar. Yeah, it's like a yeah, broadcast of what's really going cool. on with the radar and everything and like they're, that. They're all dressed in period. They're costume. dressed in the period clothes. Cool. So, yeah. So later on, we're going to talk about how Dayton went through and they created the the flood district here. And part of the flood district is out at Huffman, close to Huffman. The Huffman Dam is Huffman out there. Dam, yeah. Huffman Dam is out there, which kind of leads us into Wright-Patterson Air Force Base because this whole area was affected. And Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is historically and now is has such an important role in Dayton, Ohio. Kim, did you know there were some prehistoric Indian mounds at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base? I did not know that. Yep, it's from the Adena Indians, and they are. If if you know, we should drive out there time sometime and look at this. We along, should. Yeah, they're along Wright Patterson, uh, along P Street, someplace out through there. So we'll go look for that one day when we can get out there in the base and look around. There were, yeah, there are a lot of uh, the mounds Indians lived around here. There are quite a yeah. few yeah, Native American a, mounds, the, the in serpent this area. mounds down south, and all yep. that stuff. Yeah. So Wright Patterson, there, there's a little bit of history. The Wright brothers, they were doing their testing there. And so that's kind of set up the the groundwork and the framework for Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So World War I comes along, and the Army Air Corps needed a place for, for airplanes, for an Air Force Base. But, of course, we didn't caught the Air Force at the time. It was the Army Air Corps. So on 22 May 1917, Wright Field was established out there. And then a little bit later, on in November of 1917, another part of the base was called McCook Field was established out there. McCook was generally used as a testing field for aviation experiments, and Wright Field was used as the flying field. So if you know anything about the base right now, you know that Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is a big testing facility, so these traditions have kind of kept going on. And if you know anything else about the base, too, you know, there was Area A, Area B, and Area C, and it is a long, complicated process that we don't have enough time to explain. That, that you actually, told me that was kind of boring, wasn't it? Was that the yeah, boring that, part I, of your research, like how this. they named everything? And yeah, and there used to even be an Area D. Oh. But but you can see how the base is separated geographically. So, they, you know, there was Area A, Area B, which started off as McCook Field. I found and out for, fairly recently that there are only, I think, two roads that access every single part of the base. Well, yeah, they've... What do you mean? Like, you can't get... Um, you, you have to, like, leave the base to go... You can't... There are two roads that connect area A, B, and C. You can get to all of the three areas. On, there's only two roads that cover the entire base. Otherwise, like, if you want to go to area C from area A, you have to, like, leave the base... And then yeah. go back on. There's there's two roads though. There might be some gates that are closed right now. I, I don't, don't know. know, but there's only I found that out fairly recently. There's only two roads that are. Oh, did you like, need to get from the, one part of the base to the other or something? I did actually. I needed to get from the chapel offices to the commissary. <laughs> but okay. Well, anyway, in 1918, Wilbur um, agreed to let McCook Field use the hangar and shop space as well as an area for its enlisted mechanics to assemble and maintain airplanes and their engines. So after World War I, 347 German aircraft were brought back to the United States for, for studying, for testing, and things mm-hmm. like they do out there right now. Oh, 
Wait till we talk about the aliens. Oh, I can't wait. Hangar 18, here we come. Well, before we get to Hangar 18 and the aliens, we got to talk a little bit more about Wright-Patterson because, curiously enough, not a lot of aliens were seen prior to 1947. (sighs) Okay, anyway. Anyway, after World War I, there was a name change, and the base... At the, I, I keep calling it the base, became known as Fairfield Air Depot. But the Patterson family, and we've talked about the Pattersons, uh, formed a committee called the Dayton Air Service Committee, Inc., and they held a campaign that in two days raised $425,000, and they purchased a little over 4,500 4, acres of land, including Wilbur Wright Field and the Huffman Prairie Field. I wonder so, how much, do you have any idea what that, is? I mean, that was in no, 1920-something numbers? Yeah. So that's still a lot of, I yeah. mean, that would be a lot now. Yeah. But in, so in 1924, the committee presented the deeds to the President of the United States, President Calvin Coolidge, for the construction of a new aviation and engineering center, and it was designated Wright Field. Wright Field was formally dedicated on the 12th of October, 1927, and guess what? Orville Wright was there to raise the flag over the Woo-hoo! new engineering center. Now, a little bit of tragedy. Um, Patterson, right? Patterson. The Patterson part comes in honor of Lieutenant Frank Stewart Patterson, who just happened to be the son of Frank J. Patterson of National Cast Register fame. Oh. The, yeah. So Lieutenant yeah. Patterson and his aerial gunner spotter, uh, Second Lieutenant Leroy Swan were killed shortly before the end of World War One in a plane crash out at Wright Field while they were testing equipment and machine guns and things like that off airplanes. Oh, that's interesting. Yep. I assumed it was because the Pattersons raised all the money to nope. designate the land. Nope. Interesting. But, oh, that's cool. But uh, Patterson's grave and memorial arch is at Woodland Cemetery and Arbitorium in Dayton, Ohio. So during and after World War II, industry really picked up in Dayton. And I think, you know, if we were to summarize, Dayton is really, and we, we've talked about that, it's it's known for its industry mm-hmm. and how, we, how we've done things here in Dayton. And uh, we'll find out next episode, industry and invention kind of end up colliding because we've had to reinvent ourselves over the last yep. probably 20, 30 years. So during and after World War II, like I said, industry really picked up. So in July 1944, a guy named Robert Blitz fired a reconstructed, German Pulse jet engine. So you don't know what that is. <laughs> Sounds but, fancy. Yeah, but I'm going to tell you what it is. So I, they're bringing stuff back from the from theater World from, War I, from World from War II. No, World War II. Oh, we're, we're now World War II. Okay, gotcha. And so they brought back oh, this, yeah, this Pulse jet engine. And by September 8th, the engineers out of Wright Pat reversed engineers an entire V1 flying bomb at Wright Patterson Air Force Base. So and between July and September? The, the engineers. We are so smart. Yeah, I'm going to talk about, wait, wait till we get to the code-breaking stuff. Talk about smart people. So the first German and Japanese aircraft started arriving at the base about 1943, and they had enough captured equipment from World War II that it filled up six entire buildings out at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Wow. There was an operation called Operation Lusty, which mm. 86 German aircraft <laughs> <laughs> were brought to Wright Field for study. And why this is significant, it was the Messerschmitt 
262, which was one of the, if no, I think it was the first jet engine fighter. Cool. So one was captured. It was brought back for us to study and to do that. And that's, that's cool. I mean, that's what Wright Patterson does out there. They have a lot of smart people they, working yeah. out at that base. Yeah, we we know some of them, uh, and uh, they're smart people are also funny. And then after the war, and I think we talked about this in one of our earlier episodes. Post-war, Operation Paperclip, which was a very secret, very controversial operation where they brought back German scientists, Nazi scientists, to be technicians and work at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And one of the most famous people that we'll know or that you will know Mm -hmm. is a guy named Werner von Braun, who's... His work working with Nazis, working with the jet engines, and he ended up. He's probably one of the primary reasons we were able to put people on the moon. Yeah, there's some. uh, Yeah, there's some controversy there. Yep. Post and Cold War. So Wright Patterson Air Force Base. There, I didn't go through, and if you really want to, you can Google and you can look and see all the different units and things that happened here at the base. But I'm, I just need to summarize this because we really only have about an hour tonight and it really gets dry when you start talking about this unit was stationed here, that yeah, unit was stationed there, and this, blah, 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 blah. So Do your research and educate yourself. Yes. Wright-Patterson was established, as we know it, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base was established in 1948 as a merger of Patterson and Wright Field. So up, up until now, we didn't have the United States Air Force. We had the Army Air Corps. Mm-hmm. And so... Right after World War II, the Army Air Corps became the United States Air Force, and Wright-Patterson became Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. All right. Yep. So just to highlight a couple of the big things that happened out at the base during the Cold War and during this time period. In 1951, the Air Technical Intelligence Center, or the ATEC, began analysis analysis of crashed Soviet aircraft engines from the Korean War. So again, this history, you know, we brought aircraft back from World War One, we brought aircraft back from World War Two, and now we got Korea going on, and uh, they're bringing, still bringing the aircraft for our engineers to look at this and learn to replicate to see what the capabilities of the enemy aircraft can do, because that's how the pilots go out and train. They know how fast it goes, they know how high it goes, and all that good stuff. Man, this... My reverse engineering of pizza dough is going to sound really lame next week compared to this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so we, we talked about area A, B, C, and D. So all the area D structures were, D structures were completely demolished in 1957. That land, now you ask where that is? Where area D was, Kim? Oh, yeah. Where is it? Where was area D? Where did you graduate from college? Right, State University. Oh, yes. that was... That yes. was Area D. So, I graduated so, from Area D. So the federal government donated that land to the state of Ohio in uh, 1963, and Wright State University was built on that land. Raiders undefeated in football since 1963. 67. Whatever. <laughs> you went, they, okay, they didn't teach you anything I about have, Wright State history. I you have even that have on a, a hoodie. <laughs> you even have a hoodie that says undefeated since I do, 1967. I do. Okay, so... <laughs> Some other interesting things that during the Cold War, there were actually B-52s were here at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base from June 1960 until July 1975. There was also a lot of medical testing going on here for the Mercury Space Program, and another famous Ohioan from the Miami Valley 
Test pilot Neil Armstrong and Edward White eventually became NASA astronauts. And unfortunately for Ed White, he was one of the astronauts killed in the the fire in Apollo 1. There's that old joke, what is it about your your city slash state that makes people want to leave the planet? You heard that one? No, I haven't. Yeah. Well, tell it. <laughs> that, I mean, that's the joke. What is it about Dayton, oh. Ohio that makes your okay. citizens want to leave I'm the a planet? Little, I'm a little slow right now. <laughs> Some other things that happen, and this kind of affects the entire region, the Army Air Defense Command. So we got to remember, back during the Cold War, there were missiles aimed at us. We had missiles aimed at the Soviet Union. And there were Nike air, surface-to-air missiles. Kim might say Nike. I'll say Nike. That were, um, they were all over this area. There were some down in Wilmington, out, some out by Oxford, Ohio. But there were different air defense sites with these Nike missiles all over this part of the country. And I'm quite sure they were all over different parts of the country, too, around the major cities and places like that. Now, some of the bad stuff that happened here. 39 Superfund sites were identified, and they found that part of the base was contaminated with chlorinated volatile organic compounds and benzene, basically gas, and the, the soils and the groundwater were contaminated out there. Later on, the EPA and the Air Force folks went out there, and they later identified 65 areas, including 13 landfills, 12, 12 earth-filled disposal zones, nine fuel or chemical spill sites, six coal storage piles, five fire training areas, four chemical burial sites, and two underground storage tanks. So had those things been there before? I do believe, no, that, that was just, I, no one paid any attention. That stuff was just out there, and I think that stuff by now has been remediated. Oh, I'm sure. I don't think there's anything... I wonder, was that there, there right like, now. before it became the base? Well, or it no, just no, no, accumulated no. Remember, all the time. testing, all the engineering. Okay, okay so, so it was that, through that stuff. Yeah, okay. so that it was identified that way. Another big famous thing that happened here in November 1995, the Dayton Peace Accords were created, or not created, they were held at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So if you're not familiar, the Dayton Peace Accords was the agreement for peace in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And so President Bill Clinton was here for that, mm -hmm. and that was a big deal. I remember, where was I in 1995? I was at Fort Irwin, California, and I remember hearing about the Dayton Peace Accords here in Dayton, Ohio at that time. Yeah, but there's they a, were, a lovely museum. Yeah, and they, the Peace Accord was signed in Paris on the 14th of December, 1914. Yep. Now... We are going to talk about UFOs because you can't yes. talk about Wright-Patterson Air Force Base without talking about UFOs. You cannot. I think we mentioned this on our UFO episode yeah. with Jay. Yes, we did. So, Jay, I hope you're listening. So, a lot of unexplained phenomena started happen happening in the skies around the United States in July 1947. We're not going to go into the Roswell and all that stuff, but Wright-Patterson Air Force Base got involved Project Sign, Project Grudge, and Project Blue Book in 1952, all headquartered here from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. In March 1952, the Aerial Phenomena Group directed the studies, um, directed to study reported UFO sightings, including those that were seen in Washington, D.C. in 1952. And again, if you That's really want to see some cool stuff, go research this stuff. You know, Google it up and look at it. 
And go back. If you haven't listened to it yet, go listen to our UFO episode because we talk about some of this stuff. Yes, we do. But by 1969, the Foreign Technology Division, or the FTD, had reported, um, or they had studied 12,618 reported sightings of unexplained stuff flying around in our skies. That's a lot of sightings. Now, of those 12,000 or so reported sightings, 701 remained unexplained when the Air Force closed its UFO investigations. That's a lot. I mean, a lot were explained, but how many of those that were explained were actually explained as extraterrestrials and they just didn't let the public know? Who knows? Well, that's J-knows. J-knows. Yep. In 1968, the report concluded that there seems to be no reason to attribute the unexplained sightings to an extraterrestrial source without much more convincing evidence. Hmm. So the FTD sent all of its case files to the United States Air Force Historical Research Center, which then transferred them in 1976 to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., which became the permanent repository of Project Sign, Grudge, and Project Blue Book. So you can go visit the National Archives and read about this stuff and read all of these unidentified... It might might be online. Interesting. But now here's an an interesting quote. In a 1988 interview with Senator Barry Goldwater, Senator Goldwater asked General Curtis LeMay for access to a secret UFO room at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Now, it is reported that LeMay got angry and said... Not only can't you get into it, but don't you ever mention it to me again. Whoa. Yeah. So there's a secret UFO room? Yeah. Maybe in Hangar 18. Mm -hmm. So Hangar 18 is supposedly where the crashed spacecraft and the alien bodies were supposed to... From Roswell. From Roswell are supposed to be stored. But they're not there anymore. Well, I've also heard that the body was moved to the gold vault at Fort Knox, Kentucky. I guarantee they're not at Hangar 18 anymore. By the way, there is no, like, labeled Hangar 18. I saw pictures of it. It is... It is... Like an unidentified hangar. So if you're if you're just like if you have base access and you're driving around looking for hangar eighteen, you're not going to find it. Because everyone knows they're actually buried out there. Like they're, not buried, but like know, in, a, in, a, in a secret bunker. Oh yeah, they were moved. They're yeah. not at the base anymore. Well, you don't know that. I do know that. Okay. <laughs> but so all this history of Wright Patterson Air Force Base, even today, Wright Patterson continues to be l- the lead for research and development and testing and other vital Air Force agencies that are headquartered out at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So that tradition from back in the 19, like 1904 of testing and research, it still continues with their mission out there today. Now, yeah, and also, we salute you, Wright-Patterson, because they're also one of the major employers of the area. So thank yes, you. Yes, it is. Thank you, U.S. I think Air Force. I believe Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is the largest employer. Like 30,000 people or in something. In the state of Ohio. Yeah, so yeah. thank you very much, Wright-Patterson. Yeah. So also out at the Air Force Base. Free museum, by the way. The United States Air Force Museum, which is absolutely incredible. People come from all over the world to tour and to go through the United States Air Force Museum 
at Which Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. It's kind of weird to me. Like, growing up here, we don't really, I, like, you don't really think about it if you have lived here your whole life. Like, you go on field trips to it as a kid and stuff, and it's just always been there. You don't really think about this is the Air Force Museum. Like, they have stealth fighters in there. They have... Um, Stumpy. They have Stumpy. Stumpy. They have okay, the wait a minute. presidential airplanes and You want to tell them about Stumpy, or do you want me to no, tell them about tell Stumpy? No, you tell about Stumpy. Okay, so Stumpy was a carrier pigeon from World War One, where they would put messages on in a little capsule on their legs. On, on, on their legs. They, they needed to get some information out, and they had, I don't think his name was Stumpy at the time, but they had this pigeon. <laughs> well, it probably, been, not, probably not, because he lost his leg. So, so they put the message on the carrier pigeons, and this pigeon flew. What a brave hero this guy was. <laughs> he flew through <laughs> artillery through the war, and... There was so much artillery, Stumpy got part of his leg blown off, but Stumpy still delivered the message. Yep, so Stumpy, yeah, he he delivered. Round of applause for Stumpy. A true American hero. Stumpy was, unfortunately, Stumpy passed, but they stuffed Stumpy. As pigeons are wont to do. And they stuffed Stumpy, and you can still see Stumpy at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Museum. He is excellently preserved. Yes, he is. His feathers still have all their color, and you, you can see Stumpy when you go out there. <laughs> so let's talk about something else that is, this absolutely amazes me. When we talk about how smart people are, when we start talking about the code breaking that went on here at... Um, Basically, right now, it was at the uh, University of Dayton grounds, ended up with it, but it was National Cash Register. So here's the story with this. In 1942, German U-boats were sinking hundreds of American ships and British ships in convoys in the Atlantic Ocean. And what this was doing, it was cutting the supply line to England, the island nation that needed the supplies to get in there, not only from the United States, but from all over the world so they could continue their effort to fight the Nazis in in Europe, on mainland Europe. So what was happening was the Germans had a code that we've all heard about the Enigma machine. So basically what the Enigma was, it is a device about the size of a shoebox that had different rings and different rotors in it. And they could twist and turn these different rotors and every time you would type in the letter, like if you wanted A, it would automatically rotate and you would get a secret code that this is how the German high command... Like the ultimate cipher. It, it, at that time, it was the ultimate cipher, but we outsmarted them. Some, a, guy from Day- a guy from Dayton, Ohio outsmarted them. Actually, you know what? I shouldn't say that because there were also the... Um, the British at Bletchley Park were also working on this. They had their own functioning machine, but here's what happened. The Germans decided to complicate this, and instead of adding three rings, they added a fourth ring. So that that meant that it would... I mean, that exponentially, you like, you yeah, you couldn't harder. you couldn't decode the messages in a timely manner. In fact, that made it almost impossible. So what happened was the United States Navy turned to... National Cash Register to do this. And what they wanted them to do was design and build a code-breaking machine. What National Cash Register did, they turned to a Dayton native named Joseph R. Desch to add up this program in 1942 and 43. Now, this was located in Building 26 of National Cash Register. 
in Dayton, Ohio. Bait, Building 26 was torn down, recently torn down in 2008. Uh, just for a fun fact right here, by that time, that land, that building did belong, as I mentioned, to University of Dayton. They tried to, there was an attempt to place it on the National Register, but it, the building was just too costly to restore, and the folks who are responsible for doing the National Register, basically what they said was, that the building itself did not meet the criteria. The significance of what happened in that building was what went on inside the building. So what was going on? The German Navy was sending out these secret messages to their U-boats using the three Enigma machine. So the three-ring Enigma had 17,576 different possible combinations. When the Germans went to the four-ring machine, that added... that expanded it to 105,456 different ways. There just physically wasn't enough time to intercept the message. And then even with 100 people working on it, you couldn't get the message out in a timely manner. Mm. To it, it could be any good. And it, it, it gets even more complicated just by rearranging the wiring. Literally, there were trillions of different ways the code could be changed. So what had to happen was they asked Mr. Desch to come up with a machine that, it wasn't an Enigma machine, but basically a way to take the codes that they had and be able to reconstruct them and, and basically break the cipher because we didn't have the key to know how the rings were set. Right. So it, the, the, the machine that he designed was called the Bombay. Now they ended up, after they figured out how to do it, they ended up, building 121 Bombays here in Dayton, Ohio. Wow. Yeah. So, like I said, the Bombay was not the the Enigma machine. It was a machine computer. Like the anti-Enigma. It was a machine computer that could decode the Enigma message. Remember, right. the, the Enigma was small. Um, so it was but, like the opposite of the anti-Enigma. Yeah. The opposite. Okay. Sure. So the Bombay was, it was huge. It was seven feet wide, six feet, six inches tall, and two feet deep, and it weighed about oh. a ton. Like I said, they made about 110 here in Dayton, Ohio. Now, what's another interesting part of the Dayton history here, it was the United States Navy, the WAVES, 600 WAVES. Those are women accepted for volunteer emergency service, worked in Dayton during World War II, and they assembled these top-secret machines. There's a movie called uh, The Imitation Game. Now, it's not about Dayton, Ohio, but it is about... Um, what the British were doing in Bletchley Park because they had a machine there that they'd been working on. Oh, cool. But with with the four rings, we needed to do this more. Right. And, they, and that's when NCR, the Navy turned to NCR, and they turned to Mr. Desch. And, and if you want to see about the waves, if you are in Dayton or visit Dayton or whatever, um, Steve mentioned Carillon Park earlier. Um, I... Anytime that we have visitors come to Dayton, Carillon Park is always a must visit uh, in my book. Um, not only do they have a, the right flyer, one of them, uh, they have a really cool exhibit on the waves. They have a really cool exhibit on cash registers, really cool exhibit on the flood. Uh, so if you come to Dayton, please go to Carillon Park. I can't plug it enough. Yeah, it's, it, it's Dayton history right there. I'd love to go down there and just walk through the, just the transportation stuff. But mm -hmm. let me get back to the Bombies here real quick. All but one of the Bombies was destroyed after the war. 
The last one made by NCR is now on display at the National Crypto Cryptologic <laughs> Museum. You almost said cryptozoology. Yeah, I almost said it. Uh, museum at Fort Meade, Maryland. Okay, so here's what fascinates me about the Bombay. I, I can't even explain it. This is so fascinating. You really need to go and Google up Bombay. That's B-O-B-B-O-M-B-E and read about it. It is incredible. Steve the was math. showing me some of these, like the formulas and stuff that they use to to create this thing. I, it's like a, I there's numbers and letters and things that aren't even English. The math <laughs> will absolutely just blow your mind. And what's amazing was that the Navy needed a way to do this. They were able to, so they I guess they figured NCR being what it was, was the best place. And NCR just happened to have this guy, Joseph R. Desch, that had the genius and the ability to design and build this machine. I, I, I really can't say this enough. Google it up to believe it and look at the math and just how complicated this was. And it's like, how do we find, how do we have people this smart that can do this? I don't and, mean and to sound smug, but Daytonians are a pretty clever group of cats. Yeah. So that kind of moves us into the industry portion of what we're doing. And most of what I'm going to talk about right now, now comes from a guy named Sam Staley, Dr. Sam Staley. He's the director of urban and land use policy at the Research Foundation, and he teaches urban economics at the University of Dayton. So I don't even want to try to claim that I did this. Most of the stuff we do, we research up under free sources, but if we can credit to who actually did the yeah, research. Yeah, if you're a UD student and you know Dr. Staley, tune him in. Yep. Tell, tell him to listen. So, Hi, Dr. Staley. Thanks for tuning in. So Dayton claimed more patents per capita than any other city in the United States in 1900. That just goes to show the innovation Right. That was going on here. Dayton was home to the largest concentration of General Motors employees outside of Detroit, Michigan, or outside of Michigan. There, let's talk about Fortune 500 companies, mm -hmm. which included National Cash Register, mm -hmm. Mead Paper Company. Uh, they were a business forms company, which was a standard register, and um, Reynolds and Reynolds, Dayco, and Phillips Industries. This is just to name a, just to name a few. So only 14 U.S. cities could claim six or more Fortune 500 headquarters in 2007. So let that sink in. We're pretty important. Uh, the Berry Company, is that somebody that like no, everybody knows or is that local? The Berry Company was a, they were a, like a phone company. They made phone books and they were headquartered here. I've met Mr. Berry. Very yeah, nice man. Just a lot. Dayton peaked as the 40th largest city in the United States in 1940. The early industrialist were more than just businessmen. We talked about uh, uh, John Patterson. Mm -hmm. they, they were visionaries. And that, I think this is what sets the people from Dayton apart from other people and other, I, certainly there are others, but yeah. it's just the concentration that was here in Dayton. Patterson was credited with laying the foundation of the first modern factory system. He uh, it was pioneering the basic principles that still drive much of modern advertising he also was responsible for redefining the relationship between labor and management. By 1930, an estimated one-sixth of all U.S. corporate executives had either been an executive at NCR or had been part of Patterson's management and training program that was out there. That is huge. I can't 
Can you grasp how significant that is? Yeah. Do you see why I'm so proud to be from Dayton? Like, yep. I, I love it here so much. So what separated Patterson from their equivalents today is just their intense civic involvement. Right. Think back to the flood. Yeah. One of the first business leaders to try and apply scientific management to local government. Uh Testing out his own di- his own ideas after rebuilding the city after the flood of 1913 that Kim talked about, he also helped create the Miami Conservancy District, which is one of the nation's first flood control districts that still manages a system of low level dams and levees that keep downtown from flooding to this day. Yep. It all goes back to what Patterson did with his money, with his people, from his company that did all this. Maybe one of Patterson's things that he did with the most foresight was bringing the city manager form of local government to the first large city in the United States. So if you're not aware of it, the mayor is kind of a figurehead mm-hmm. in, the, in the city if you have this type of uh, government in your city. And it's actually the city manager that takes care and runs the day to the day debate. The day-to-day business. And you yes. know this because you were basically, in effect, the city manager... Uh, an no, army post, no, right? No. Oh. I was more like the city engineer. Oh, well, okay. whatever. Okay. <laughs> so, as we round up, we still have a lot of stuff to talk oh, about. Oh, we Dayton. are just, we're only up to what, like 1940-something? We got uh, to keep on moving, but we don't have time to do it tonight. We don't have time today, so we're going to pick up in the 50s next week. Um, but thank you so much for listening. Uh, we have a couple of things that I wanted to mention. Um, if you want to reach out to us, you can hit us up at alosthour at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram. Um, just look for an hour of your life, Facebook, an hour of your life. Uh, also, Best of Dayton voting is open until the end of the month. January 31st, I believe, is your last day to vote. Um, so please, please, please go on Vote Every Day. Vote with all of your email addresses. Uh, just go to Dayton.com, and at the top is a bright red banner that says Best of Dayton. You click on it, and there's a hundred. I think there's like 156 different categories or something. Just search for Best Podcast. Um, it's under the enter- Best in Entertainment category, and please vote for an hour of your life. And it looks like we're going to be featured on Podbean. We are going to be featured on Podbean. You'll see our banner. Also, something that I kind of am trying to get a feel for, um, we are considering putting out some T-shirts. If that's something that you would be interested in, drop us a line and let me know. Um, if there's no interest, we're not going to do it. But if it's something, if you would like an Hour of Your Life logo T-shirt, please let me know at alosthour at gmail.com. Well, Kim, it's time we start wrapping this one up today. All right. Good so, show. Yep. I like Dayton. I love Dayton. I love being here in Dayton. I I'm really happy to be here right now. very, very, very proud Dayton resident. So... As we get out of here tonight from the 13th Hour Studio in beautiful Beaver Creek, Ohio, which is in the Miami Valley. Thank you for spending an hour of your life with us. 